Good morning. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Hey, for those of you who are maybe brand new to Flourishing Grace, you're the ones who are sitting down quietly, um, and uh, it's, good to, it's good to be with you. My name is Josh Nye, I'm the pastor of Preaching and Vision, and it's a joy to be with you guys this morning as we open the Word. And so um, if you brought a Bible, you're going to open it up to Matthew chapter 24, Matthew 24. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. Um, there's a Bible underneath the seat in front of you. There's a rack down there. You can pull out a Bible. And Matthew 24, and that Bible at least, is on page 779, 779. And we are in a series that's brand new. We just started it last Sunday in the park, Sunday in the park, which is so much fun. Uh, we're calling Eyes Up. Eyes Up, Reflections on the Return of Christ. And the hope is over the next month, ish, even a little bit more than a month, is that we as a whole church family, as a whole community at Flourishing Grace, would really just get our eyes on the return of Jesus. And as we open up uh, scripture after scripture after scripture about the return of Christ, that we would become more and more and more excited as a people, more eager as a people, with great anticipation, a people of anticipation. And at the same time, it would change the way we think and change the way we act um, as we, as all the more, as we await the day that is coming for us um, as a people. And so I'm excited for this whole series, um, but this morning I'm excited to get into Matthew 24. And, and I'm going to read it for us and we'll get into it, um, but fair, fair warning, last Sunday, if you were at Sunday in the Park, it was kind of high level, like just get excited because Jesus is coming back. Um, and so this Sunday we're going to get a little bit more into the weeds just a little bit more. And so it's going to be just a little bit more uh, in-depth. And so you're going to have to just kind of put your thinking cap on and follow along with me a little bit this morning as I kind of uh, don't make any sense for a minute. But it will make sense at, by the end. Cool? You guys like that kind of movie? All right. Let's do this. Here at Flourishing Grace, we believe that this is the Word of God. Um, it's a gift from His hands. And so if you're able, would you stand with, in honor and reverence to the Word as I read it for us this morning? We're going to start in verse 36, chapter 24 of Matthew's gospel, verse 36. It reads this way. But concerning that day, this is Jesus talking to his disciples. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect." Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has set over his house to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is the servant whom the master will find so doing when he comes. 
Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him to pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can have a seat. And I'm just going to pray for us one more time. Jesus, this is your word. These are your words that are spoken to your disciples. And I know that these words carry deep significance and meaning and power for even us today. That those who can say, man, I want to follow you. I, I want to be your disciple today. I want to apprentice after you. I want to model my life after you. And so, man, would you, would you press them into our hearts? I ask that your spirit would fill every single square inch of our souls right now and stir us awake to your coming, that we would know the master is coming back. And so as we open this word and as we look at it together and study it together and reflect on your return, I pray that it would not be me and my words, but that you would speak to us this morning. That anything that is of me, anything that is of Josh would just fall on deaf ears. It would go in one ear and out the other. But anything that is of you, anything that, you're, that you have for us this morning, as we open your word, would press deep into us, would stir us and awaken us, that we would live as people awake to your return. I pray these things in your sweet name. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Friends, I have a question for you as we begin. And this, just so we know, just so we're clear, this is a judgment-free zone, right? Judgment-free, all right? This is, this is flourishing grace, church. You can't have more grace than that. It's like flourishing, okay? It's so judgment-free, all right? Here's the question. How many of you in the room have seen every single movie in the Marvel canon of movies, like the whole all thing, uh, all the Avenger movies and all of them? Uh, okay, a good, decent number of you. How many of you would say, man, I've seen half or more, half or more. Wow, a lot of you, okay? How many of you would say, man, I've never seen a single Marvel movie ever? Anybody? Okay, this is gonna be meaningless for you. All right, so just here's all you need to know, right? When Disney gets their hooks in something, they just crank out the dollar bills. That's just what they do. And that's what they did with Marvel, right? Um, I don't remember how many years ago it was, but like way back when, right, there was like the first Iron Man movie. I think you guys, all the nerds in the room can correct me. Sorry, judgment-free zone, judgment-free zone. Uh, you guys can correct me if this is wrong, but Iron Man was like the first original, like one in this canon of movies. And the first Iron Man was like this mind-blowing, like this is it, like this is an amazing movie, right? Iron Man is on the stage. Like you get to watch Tony Stark like build the original Iron Man suit in order to get out of some crazy terrorist cave or whatever. You guys remember this? So we tracking, right? And you think that's it. And then there's another Iron Man and another Iron Man. And then they start introducing the other Avenger characters to the story. You meet Hulk and you get to engage with Captain America and Thor. And I know all, all these things are like, man, you are a nerd, but trust me. Like, I don't, like, I'm going to get emails this week because you're like, that's not the right order. Um, <laughs> save it. All right. I said, this is a judgment-free zone, but if you email me, I will judge you. Uh, no, like you get to meet Doctor Strange and all the Guardians of the Galaxy, and it's all leading up to a, a bigger story. 
you realize as time goes on and as years go on and as Disney collects their billions of dollars off of this, right, you realize they're, they're not telling just the story of Iron Man. They're telling this grand narrative all leading up to Thanos, right? Thanos, the kind of the climax of the entire arc of the story is Thanos uh, snapping his fingers with the Infinity Stones and wiping out half of the galaxy, right? That's the climax of the story. But you know it can't end there. It can't, and Spider-Man can't die, right? There's got to be something more. And so it moves into, right, the end game, the end game, this idea of, like, this is not the end. There's, there's more to the story. Um, this, is, uh, this is what uh, men literary folks uh, call the denouement. Right? It's a French term, and it means kind of the unraveling of the end. It's, it's like in a mystery novel, like the climax is when you realize who the murderer is. But the denouement is like when all the clues uh, come together and the, the, the murderer is apprehended and, and the investigator uh, kind of reveals how they solve the crime. And it's like the satisfying part of the story, the, the part, part where everything kind of fits together at the end. And like this, this is an incredible piece. That's the piece that everybody like loves when it all comes together at the end. And you realize, oh my goodness, like remember when uh, Doctor Strange was like sitting there and his head was bobbing like really, really fast and he figured out there's one way. There's one way this is all going to go down. That's the denouement when you realize, oh, this is the one way that it's all going to come together at the end of the story. Now, the reason why we had to step into Nerdville for a minute, sorry, judgment-free, the reason why we had to go there for a minute is this. I believe that as we unpack Scripture and we begin to look at it from beginning to its end, what we see is not just one great story, but all of these unbelievable stories that are woven together. So you have the great stories of the Old Testament, right? Noah, Noah could be like the story, right? It has this unbelievable climax and this unbelievable resolution. It's an incredible story, right? You have uh, David and Goliath, right? David steps onto a field, which is a little slingshot against a full-grown man in armor, a battle-hardened, trained soldier ready to kill him, and David kills him, right? Uh, D- Daniel in the lion's den, right? Like it can't, like that's, that's an unbelievable story in itself. Or Moses from growing up from a baby all the way up to the man who steps into the room with Pharaoh and says, enough. Like it can't, like the climax of the, the sea parting and, and the Egyptians being completely crushed, right? That's a story in itself. But as we zoom out, what we see is, oh, no, 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 no. That's just the weaving together of story after story after story, all leading into a grand narrative. We call this narrative redemptive history. Redemptive history. This is the first thing that I need you to see this morning. Before we even get into our text for this morning, as we kind of begin to muse on and think on and reflect on the return of Jesus, you've got to understand redemptive history. And you've got to understand that since the dawn of time, there is one writing a grander story. There's one writing a grander story. This is God's story. He is the one writing the story. In order to understand redemptive history, you must understand that there's one who rules over all history. And he does so for the good of those who love him, Paul tells us in Romans 8. This is what theologians call God's providence. God's providence. Providence comes from these two Latin root 
terms. Pro, which means forward, and vide, which means to see. It's where we get the word video, right? To, to see. And so pro is to, to see forward, right? But pro also means uh, for the sake of others or on behalf of. On behalf of. And so um, to, to provide is to, uh, on behalf of others, to see to it. I'll see to that they're cared for. I'll see to that they're fed. I'll see to it that they make it to school. I'll see to it that the project gets done. This is where we get the word provide. I will provide it. I will step in and I will make sure that this thing is dealt with, cared for, taken care of, provided. Are we tracking so far? This is where we get the word providence from. Providence is not just God's ability to see the future, but it's his ability to provide the future. He is providing all things at all times in his great sovereignty. God's provision, his providence, is him regulating the temperature of the sun so that we do not melt or freeze. It is his um, setting the earth on its proper axis and spinning it at the right speed so that we don't get crushed by gravity or float away into space. It is his um, steering all of human history again and again and again and again to its end. Again and again and again, we see dictators rise and evil, tyrannical kings rise, and we see them fall again and again and again and again. This is God's providence, his caring for his creation to those who love him. I love how Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer was a, a pastor in uh, Nazi Germany, and so as he looks out at the Nazis who are dominating Europe, he says this in a letter to a friend. He says, the ruler of history repeatedly brings good out of evil over the heads of the history makers. He says, man, we don't need to fear this because there is a greater ruler of history who will bring good out of evil. And he's done it again and again and again and again, whether it's the Medes and the Persians, the Babylonians, the Romans, or even the Nazis, Bonhoeffer says, man, I know how the story ends. And it does not end with a victory of evil. It ends with a victory of God Almighty. And so we know that God is writing a grander narrative and that he is in control of all of human history. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 10, 29. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Cheap, worthless. And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But, if, but even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are more value than many sparrows. Man, God is caring for all things at all times. And Jesus says, man, you are of more value than many sparrows. God is steering history according to his will. And he's steering it for the good of those who love him. In order to illustrate this further, I drew you all a picture this week. Nobody? Nobody's excited about that? Man, when my kids draw me a picture, I get excited. It's on the fridge at home. or the, I got some in my office. Here is my... Unbelievable artwork. You all are welcome for that. Uh, so we have, a, down there we, have, we have creation, and then all the way down on this side, we have, we have new creation, right? The new heavens and the new earth. And we see all of these lines representing these, these huge moments of history, rise and fall of empires, incredible stories, movements of God again and again and again. And everything hinges on the climax of human history. The climax of human history is Christ. 
His death and his resurrection, his coming, his first coming. Everything shifts. Everything hinges on that. Before that, you have the old. And after that, you have the new. Uh, Before that, you have B.C. And after that, you have A.D. All of our time frame hinges on that moment. And before that, what we see in all of those great movements is humanity's need for a greater Savior. Right? David and Goliath teaches us that there is a greater enemy than Goliath. There's a greater enemy than the flood of Noah. There's a greater threat than the lions in the lion's den. Sin and the devil have captivated all of humanity and are going to crush it and murder it. We need a greater Savior. And so David defeating the Goliath points us to a greater Savior. Noah and his ark points us to a greater ark. We need a greater Savior who can save all of humanity. It's all marching towards the cross of Christ. But we know the story can't end there. It can't end with just the hero coming and dying and raising from the ground. There's got to be more to the story than that. It can't just be Thanos snapping his fingers and Spider-Man dies. There's more to it than that. And so we live in this side of history. Humanity's need for a new home. We know there's got to be more. Jesus didn't come and just die and raise from the grave and never come back. We live in this place where we get glimpses of the new heaven and the new earth as the church is obedient to Christ, formed in his image and walks with the Spirit. We get to see it again and again and again and again. And so where is God steering all of human history? He's steering it to its end. There is an end to the story. That's what you have to understand this morning. That's what you need to know. And he's been steering it to his end from day one. There's always been an end to the story. There's always been something that comes after the climax of the story. There's always been a resolution. There's always been a denouement. Now, Jesus, in our text this morning, in the very first verse that we read, in verse 36, uh, you can put that away. Nobody wants to look at that anymore. Um, Maybe we'll bring it back out later. Uh, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Jesus says, nobody knows the day or the hour, right? Not even the angels of heaven, not even the Son, only the Father knows the day or the hour. But then, but then he goes on to do two things. First, we're going to look at this in a minute. He describes what the day and hour looks like. And then he gives these two parables. And in one of them is this image of a thief coming in the middle of the night. And here's what he says. This is in verse, we're skipping down to verse 43 if you're following along. But know this, he says, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would have not let his house be broken into. Therefore, You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you don't expect. Did you catch it? It's subtle, but it's fascinating. If the master of the house would have known, not that a thief is coming, if he would have known that his house has been broken into, no, 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 no. What part of the night, what part of the night, he would have stayed awake. And then we're commanded to stay awake. I believe that Jesus is saying, Jesus says, it's very clear. Don't mishear me. 
no mystery. No one knows the day or the hour, but we know that he's coming, and we know what part of the night. We don't know the day or the hour, but we know that he's coming, and we know what part of the night. And so we are commanded to stay awake. What part of the night? Um, sorry, Rachel, can you throw that picture back up? I know everybody just wants to see it one more time. One more time. Here's the question. Where are we in that timeline? Where, where are we in that timeline? Are we awaiting the climax of human history? No. We're 2,000 years removed from it. Are we closer to the beginning or are we closer to the end? Man, I'm pretty sure my fourth grader could answer this question, friends. Yeah, we're closer to the end. Closer to the end. I want to make the case that we are living in the denouement. We know when Jesus comes back. He comes back at the end. Yeah, we don't know the exact day. We don't know the exact hour. But we know when he's coming back. He's coming back at the end of the story. Are we closer to the beginning or the end? Closer to the end. We are living in the denouement. We're living in a time where, where we can look back over all of human history and we can actually see God's plan unfolding through time all the way up into the cross. And now we can see from the cross to, to the next kind of great moment of all of human history, the return of Christ. And we can say, oh my goodness, we are living in the end. It is the end game. It's coming. If Christ's death and resurrection is the climax of human history, this means that we are living close to the end of the story, the end game, the denouement. And as we begin to unpack the return of Christ, we are diving into the study of what theologians call eschatology. Eschatology. Can you guys say eschatology? eschatology. Just want to make sure you're with me because I know I've been steering this all over the place. Don't worry, we're settling back into the test. Eschatology is simply the study of the end. It's a study of the end, and it would appear that we're living towards the end of the story. Jesus says we cannot know the day or the hour, but then he goes on to describe what that day and hour will be like. That's eschatology. It's a study of all of the things that Jesus says, all of the things that Paul says and Daniel says and John says about what that day and hour is going to look like. And so the more we study that, we're doing the work of eschatology. The study of everything that Scripture tells us about the day and the hour. Not so that we might know more information, but so that we might be ready with our eyes fixed on Jesus. Now, I'm from Chicago, and I remember so well, almost every day in Chicago, you could go down in the South Loop on State Street, and there was a guy there with like an A-frame sign, uh, a little portable battery-powered speaker and a microphone screaming all of the time that the end is near, right? We're all going to burn. You better get ready. Turn or burn, baby, because the end is near. There's volcanoes. There's locusts. There's earthquakes. There's floods. There's pandemics. Wait, I'm like, no, 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 bro. That was 2020. I lived through that, okay? That's not, that's not the end. That's like, that's, we, we know what that's like. Right, all the time. Now that guy probably lives like on YouTube, right? He's like shouting that all day long on YouTube. And you guys have seen that. You've heard that. But I want to make the case this morning that I think that there's something far different going on here. Jesus actually tells us, he describes what the day and the hour is like. We get freaked out when we talk about eschatology and the end times. We're like, oh my gosh, like locusts and volcanoes and crazy stuff, like wars, Right? I think it's different than that, though. How does Jesus describe the last day? Did you guys pick up on it? What's that? 
What, is it, what, is he, what does he compare it to? What does he compare it to? I can hear a lot of whispering, but you've got to be a bit louder. I, I have a microphone on my face. What is it? A thief in the night? The days of Noah, right? That's what he's stacking it next to. The days of Noah. He, and he, a thief in the night is true as well. Right, but the days of Noah, he stacks it next to the days of Noah. Here's what he says exactly, verse 37. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of man. Right? He's comparing and contrasting these two things. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill and one will be taken and one will be left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know the day your Lord is coming. And so what will people be doing in the last days or on the last day? What will they be doing? Normal stuff. Normal, everyday life. They will be marrying and being given to marriage. It's just like a normal thing. You'll be preparing for your daughter's wedding or your son's wedding. You'll be eating and drinking. He says, like two men going into a field. It's just two guys going to work. Two dudes sitting in a cubicle. All of a sudden, they're sitting, hey, man, did you see the game last night? Man, that was crazy. Aaron Rodgers and one's gone. One's taken. One's left. Two women going to the mill. This would be a normal, everyday thing, grinding the grain of the mill to make the bread for that day. It's a fresh-made bread. It's like two ladies at the grocery store. It's like, man, I don't remember. What, what aisle do they keep the flour on? Every single time I come here, the... one will be taken, one will be left. It's a normal, everyday thing. It's a thief in, in the night. It's, it's this hour that you do not expect. It's not, it's not like, oh my gosh, everybody's going to know because this is the day because there's locusts and flames and fire. Now, I know where those guys are pulling that information, and I know that there's, there's a biblical idea behind that. But what Jesus, the Son of God himself, says, it's going to be a normal day. It's a normal day like today. And we don't know the day, and we don't know the hour, but what we do know is this. It's coming at the end. And we're far closer to the end than we are the beginning. We're living in the denouement. And so while those guys on the street corner and on YouTube might sound crazy, they're not completely off. I think the end is far nearer than we know. And I believe that it's coming on just a simple, normal day. Now I know some of you are thinking right now, wait a second, whoa, 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 but you skipped over something important. They just disappeared. They're just there, and then they're gone. Like, what is that? Where did they go? What did Jesus do with them? Did he take them? Here's what we're going to do. Because we just don't have time, and because it's not the point of the text, uh, I'm going to create like a separate video. A friend of mine recommended this this week, and I think it's a great idea. Rather than spending all of our time talking about all of the crazy stuff of eschatology, I'm just going to talk about that in a video um, like the guys on YouTube, and uh, just kidding, not like that, and we'll send it out to you guys so that you're not completely anywhere. I think it's so important to understand those things and to study those things and to, to determine where you land on those things. Well, what, what do we think when we think about the millennial reign of Jesus? And what do we think when we think about the rapture? And what do we think when we think about um, the, the, the tribulation? And what do we think when we think about the Antichrist? Like, those are like the terms that 
that people talk about when they talk about eschatology and the order in which they come and those are important things to understand, important things to think about, but it's not the point. It's not the point. There's a greater point than all of that. I like how theologian John Frame puts it. He says this, he says, so far as I can see, every biblical passage about the return of Christ is written for a practical purpose, not to help us develop a theory of history, but to motivate our obedience. That is the whole point of this text. The whole point of Jesus' teaching right here is that we would be a people who are awake. He says it several times in this text. Uh, first, in verse 42, he says, Therefore, stay awake, stay awake, for you do not know the day your Lord is coming. So I want to ask the question that's actually more important than where did those people go? Was that the rapture? Did Jesus just snatch them? Right? There's a more important question. The question that the text puts in front of us is this question. How do we stay awake? What does it look like to stay awake? Jesus gives two parables. We already kind of looked at one, so we're going to look at the bigger one. And the bigger one starts with a big question. And every time Jesus asks a question, we might want to pay attention to that question. Here's what he says. This is in verse 45, if you're following along. Who then, who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has set over his household? Who is it? Who will be that person? To give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom the master will find so doing when he comes, blessed is him. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all of his possessions. But, but if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect and at an hour he does not know and will cut him to pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This text is so important. It, it is all of everything that Jesus is teaching, kind of coming to a head and saying, man, the goal of it all is that you would stay awake. Stay awake. And there is a, there is a joy for those who stay awake. Then the master is going to put him over everything. We will rule together with Christ forever and ever and ever. We will be as sons and daughters of the Most High, a kingdom of priests. But for those who are asleep to this, there are consequences attached. We're going to talk more about that in a few weeks. But there are consequences attached to those who fall asleep. But for those who stay awake, there's joy. Jesus is coming and the quality that he is looking for in you when he returns, is it a deep knowledge of an eschatological timeline? No. No. Rather, he is, uh, he is, it's the managing of his household, the giving of food at a proper time. In other words, it's the caring for others, taking care of one another. It's how you treat one another. That is what Jesus is looking for. How are you stewarding that which I have entrusted to you? Your story is a small part of an eternal grand narrative that is taking place over generations and generations. And it would appear clearly to anyone who takes a close look that the arc of the story, that we are living towards the end of that story. The bulk of the pages of human history, 
are in the left hand, not the right. It's coming to a close. And I do believe that we should be awakened. And I believe that this awakening, it should awaken a desire in us to study the return of Christ so that we might have a theory, not so that we might have a theory of the future, but rather that we might be motivated all the more to cling to him as we see the day drawing nearer. So what do people who are eagerly awaiting the return of Christ do? What does the, the good servant do? What does he look like? What, what are his or her days marked by? I think it's simple. It's going to work. We go to church. We raise our children. We love our spouses. We care for others. We care for our friends. But we do all of this with our eyes up for the glory of God, not for our own glory. In the service of the master, not for us. Jesus has given us work to do in this life. And when he returns, he expects to find us doing that work. Not to earn good favor, but out of our duty and a responsibility to what he's already done for us. Out of the joy of grace. But he expects to find us doing it all to the glory of God, not begrudgingly, not for our own glory, but to be fully delighting in him as we labor, fulfilling our days with prayers of thanksgivings and songs of praise, hopeful thoughts of our future home. This is freeing to know that our Savior who loves us and has come for us and covers us with his mercy has also empowered us by his Spirit and given us everything we need to be found by him, but only if we keep our eyes on him, only if we stay awake. We must stay awake. Will he find you faithful over what he has entrusted to you? That's the call. That's the whole point of everything that Jesus is trying to say is, man, we must stay awake, remain faithful, endure to the end. Don't get distracted. Don't let the world and the flesh and the devil turn you away from me. Follow me. Follow me. Fix your gaze. Get your eyes up. So here's what I want to do kind of as we close out our time this morning. I want to ask you the question, simple question. What has the master entrusted to you? What has he entrusted to you? What has he given you to steward? I think sometimes we can think that our story, our life, this is a tiny little piece of the story. Insignificant, trivial, meaningless. And yet, I don't think that David knew when he fought Goliath that his story, that this moment of his life was going to be a part of this grander narrative that would point the entire world to their need for a savior. I don't think he was thinking that. I think he was just thinking, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill this guy. For the sake of my people and for the sake of my God, I'm, I'm going I'm to sacrifice myself. I'm going to be faithful in this one moment of my life. And it turned into a, a moment that kind of defines part of human history. What, has, what moments has God entrusted you with? What duties has he laid before you? Are you a husband? Are you a wife? He's entrusted you with that. He's entrusted you with the care of your spouse to lead them, to guide them, to serve them, to point them to him. 
Are you a mom? Are you a dad? Are you a friend? Are you a coworker? He's entrusted you with those things. Has he blessed you? Do you have possessions, things that he has entrusted you with? He's given over to you. How will he, the master find you, stewarding the things that he has given you when he returns? Will it be for the sake of others? Will it be a selfless life, managed well for the sake of others? Or will it be selfish, managed for yourself? 